March 19th of last year. So this is the 54th and final sermon in our study of this gospel. It's not the longest sermon series that we've had since I've been here. Genesis was 62 sermons and Mark was 57 in case you're keeping track at home. But I hope this uh, study, although long, has been beneficial for your spiritual well-being. The purpose of the gospel is to show that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save those who are lost. And I think it's always great to study the gospel so that we can be reminded of the person of Jesus and the works of Jesus and to see what God expects of us as followers of Jesus. Well, here in Luke chapter 24, it is Sunday night for them. It's the evening of the resurrection. Jesus had appeared to the disciples uh, who had traveled on the road to Emmaus. We looked at that. um, uh, Was it last time? Yes, last time. And those two disciples decided that they should go back to Jerusalem and tell the apostles about what they had seen, as well as the other uh, followers of Jesus. And the first thing that happens when they get back to this room where they're all staying and wondering about all these events that have taken place is before the the two disciples, Cleopas and his friend, uh, are able to say anything, the apostles start telling Cleopas and his friend about all that they had known about Jesus and His resurrection. In fact, that Jesus had appeared to Peter. And uh, we saw that at the end of last time. And so now Cleopas and his friend have this captive audience to which they can tell about this experience that they had with Jesus on the road to Emmaus and then eating with Him and so on. And that's where we find ourselves here in verse 36. Cleopas and his friend are telling the events of what have happened And so that's where we'll pick it up here. So let me begin reading in verse 36. This is the Word of God. While they were telling these things, He Himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold... I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. It's hard to believe even for Jesus' closest followers that Jesus could possibly 
be alive bodily. And so here, what Jesus wants them to know is that yes, He indeed is alive and that He has resurrected bodily. He he proves to His followers that He is alive and then He commissions them to be His witnesses. That's what we're going to see this evening. So the first thing that we see in verses 36 through 47 is that Jesus clearly reveals to His followers that He is alive. And He does that in several ways. First, intellectually. Intellectually. That is, He gives an intellectual verification that He is alive in verses 36 through 38. He appears to them. He says, uh, it says there in verse 36 that as they're speaking about these things, this is Cleopas and his friend talking about the events that they had just experienced, Jesus appears in their midst. So now there's no more discussion. Well, is this true? Is this really happening? What, what does this really mean? Jesus kind of settles all of their doubts in that way. As they're sharing stories, Jesus Himself appears and He says to them at the end of verse 36, Peace be to you. Now the followers, we would think, would embrace Him and say, okay, we we totally understand. This all makes sense. But instead, notice their response in verse 37. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. The word spirit there could also be translated a ghost. This is what they think when they see Jesus. I mean, this can't be. We know He was dead. How could He be in our presence? Isn't this kind of funny? I mean, they're, they're standing around talking about how Jesus is alive and that He's appeared to various people. And when He actually appears to them, they say, it must be a ghost. It's, it's got to be some kind of a spirit because this can't happen. And what this teaches us is that even the closest and most loyal followers of Jesus find it initially hard to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. And this actually, I think, speaks to the verification that He really did raise from the dead. Because, um, you know, if they had immediately accepted it without any question, we might say, well, it sounds like kind of a hoax. I mean, I I guess a cynic would say that. We wouldn't say that. But but for them to even have some initial doubts seems realistic. But even people who don't have all of the written testimony of the Scriptures like we do, uh, when they first experience these things, don't quite understand what's going on. Well, Jesus wants to settle their doubts, and He does it by challenging them and inviting them to look at the evidence. Verse 38. He says, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your heart? Apparently, their doubts had to do not with that He was alive. It seems like they are convinced that He's alive, but they don't quite understand that He's resurrected bodily. I mean, it's one thing to think that, okay, Jesus is not dead anymore, but but they couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that His body was somehow completely intact. They had seen, many of them, especially the women, had seen His body just mutilated from beating and from the death that He experienced. And Jesus wants them to see that He has indeed resurrected bodily from the tomb. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because we stand on this side of the resurrection, this side of the completed Scriptures. And so we know why it was so important that the disciples verify that Jesus is, in fact, resurrected and that He resurrected bodily. We know that now. And here's where we we learned that from. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Why was it so important that Jesus resurrected bodily? Look at verse 12 with me. 
1 Corinthians 15:12. Now, if Christ has preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? So here's the connection. Christ raised from the dead. Therefore, believers will be raised from the dead. So if there are some among you that say there is no resurrection, then, then um, maybe you don't believe that Christ was raised from the dead. Verse 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ. So if that were the case, if there was no such thing as resurrection. Verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. seems like Paul's point here is that, that we have wasted our time if we believe in a resurrection that's not real. right? If Christ's resurrection is not real, then why should we hope in a resurrection for ourselves? Because if Christ can't be raised from the dead, we certainly can't. And we can't preach the gospel if Christ was not raised. At least we can't preach it effectively. We can't promise resurrection to anyone. We can't promise that Christ will conquer death if He hasn't conquered death for Himself. He's not going to conquer it for anyone else. But of course we know that Christ was raised and that's why this evidence that Christ really was alive is so important. That He resurrected bodily. So He gives first an intellectual verification. Turn back to chapter 24 of Luke. Secondly, he gives a physical verification that he has resurrected bodily. And he does it by offering for his disciples to touch him. Notice verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. By offering his followers to touch him, Jesus is saying, all these reports that you are hearing about me raising bodily from arising bodily from the grave are true. And you can verify it by actually touching me. Can you touch a spirit? Can can you actually physical physically grab onto a spirit, touch their their skin? Here's your opportunity. I'm not a ghost. This is not a dream. You haven't had too much wine. People are not making up stories. Touch me and see for yourself. This Reminds me of an encounter that the elderly Apostle John will have with Jesus 50 years after the events of what we're looking at tonight. And John there in Revelation chapter 1 is just overwhelmed at the sight of Jesus. He stands before Him with fear and awe. And Jesus says to him in Revelation 1.18, I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus confirms to John 50 years later what He's confirming to these believers here in this upper room, and that is that He is alive. He has risen bodily from the grave. If He were a spirit, He would not have a body. That's what the end of verse 39 is saying. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then He showed His hands and feet. So Jesus first reasons with them intellectually, and then He shows them physical proof that He is alive. And look at how they respond in verse 41. 
while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, He said to them. They still could not believe it. Jesus had said, listen, I'm alive. All these reports are true. Touch me and see. They still found it hard to believe. It's hard for us to put ourselves in their sandals because nothing like this will ever happen in our lifetime. But but just, just humor me for a few minutes. Imagine with me what this might have been like for them. Think right now about the closest person person that you've ever lost in death. Death is so hard for us because death is final, isn't it? And if you've lost an immediate family member, you know this especially because you were there in the back of the church when they closed the casket for the final time. Or you were there in the funeral home when they closed the casket for the final time. And if you were anything like me, you felt the finality of that situation. That that death was real. There's no talking to the funeral director. Hold on a second. There's one more alternative treatment that I've heard about that, that will cure my loved one. I know it. Let me just try. Let me just try to see if we can revive them one more time. That loved one was going to be buried in the ground that day. And when you went home that evening, you would find them not sitting there, but you would find them gone. But how would you respond after that takes place with your close loved one? How would you respond if a few days later that your loved one reappeared to you? I mean, would you believe your eyes? Would you trust your own mind? When you lose a loved one, that person consumes your thoughts. It's like you think back to all the experiences that you had with them. You think about the last experiences that you've had with them. And it consumes your thoughts from morning till evening and even in the, the short periods of time when you awake in the night. You're, you're constantly thinking about that person. And you know what happens when you're constantly thinking about one thing 24-7? Your mind can actually play tricks on you, can it? Especially when you're tired and you haven't had enough sleep. Or especially when you're actually sleeping because sometimes that loved one reappears to you in a dream and that dream seems very real, doesn't it? So now think with me about the disciples. Is it really so hard to understand that they had a hard time coming to grips with the resurrection of Jesus? For the past three days, they're considering how could this all happen? How could this all just fall apart? He was supposed to come into Jerusalem and set up His kingdom, and now He's dead. And now they're starting to hear reports that He's alive, and now He appears to them. Is my mind playing tricks on me? Am I missing something? Jesus says, touch me and see, and they still have trouble believing that he is alive. And so he gives them a third verification or a third proof that he is alive. And it is digestible verification. Verses 41 to 43. I don't know if that's the best word, but how about edible? I'm not not sure, but he doesn't have them eat him. but, But the point is that he says, let me have something to eat. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, verse 42, and he took it and ate it before them. Again, I think this is similar to what happened at the end of verse 39. Have you ever seen a spirit with flesh and bones? Have you ever been able to touch a spirit, a ghost? No. How about, a, how about taking something off of your table and actually digesting it? Have you ever seen a ghost do that? And that's the point here. He wants to give them uh, proof in that way. No, no ghost can do that. No spirit can do that. I am alive. I have resurrected bodily. Fourth, he gives uh, 
he gives biblical verification. Biblical verification, verses 44 to 47. And he gives, uh, he wants them to see that, that what he said about himself is true. And then also what the Old Testament said about him was true. After he ate, he proved his bodily resurrection from his own words. Notice what he says there in verse 44. These are my words which I spoke to you. So while I was with you, do you remember what I said to you? you remember about how the Old Testament was supposed to be fulfilled in me, your Messiah? And very likely he reminded them of his clear words that he said on multiple occasions like he did in chapter 9, verses 21 and 22 where he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered over the hands of uh, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and he's going to be killed and he's going to be raised from the dead. Do you remember how I said that? Do you, do you remember what I said there? And, and that was simply what, what you're seeing now is simply a fulfillment of what the Old Testament had spoken long before. Not only does he remind them of what he had told them, but he also illuminates their minds. Look at verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Does that sound familiar? From last week, look at verse 31. While they're eating with them, then their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he's explaining the Scriptures to us? Every truth that you know about Christ, in order for you to accept it and to believe it, you first have to be illumined by, by God Himself. Because as Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood does not, did not reveal the fact that Jesus is the Messiah to you, but it was my Father in Heaven who revealed that to you. It was my Father in Heaven who opened your mind. That's what has to happen in order for us to experience or to believe any truth in the first place. And so that's what He does here. They're confused. They're startled. They're frightened. They're still not being able to believe what's going on. And so He explains to them what's going on from the Scriptures. And then, and then it says, verse 45, He opens up their minds. That's the illumining work of um, now the Holy Spirit. Here it says it comes from Jesus, but I don't think we would be inconsistent to say that the Holy Spirit is also doing that work there in verse 45. And notice what these words actually point to in verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And what were the words? That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus wants to confirm two realities from the Scriptures. And He's going to do that in verses 46 and 47. It is that the Messiah had to suffer. And secondly, that the Messiah would rise from the dead. So, the foundation for that is what he had been telling them in verse 44 about the Old Testament and how it was going to be fulfilled in him. So, first, Jesus confirms that the Messiah had to suffer in verse 46. He said, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. So, there's the first part. The Messiah had to suffer, and the second part is that he would rise from the dead. Christ's death was necessary in order to the, for there to be forgiveness of sins and Christ's resurrection was necessary in order that He reign as King. And these two realities demand a specific response from us, or really from them, but by extension or by application, us. Notice the response that He expects of them in verse 47. First, first thing I want to point out is that, that we would be His messengers and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed. 
Okay, so that word proclaim tells us that there's something that needs to be done with this message that Christ suffered and He rose from the dead. Second, that we would call people to repentance. It's in the first part of the verse, that repentance for forgiveness of sins. Third, that, it, that we would offer forgiveness of sins. Not that it's inherent in us, but we're offering it on behalf of God. So repentance, forgiveness of sins. And then fourth, that we would come on the authority of Jesus Christ. Verse 47 reads, and that repentance forgiveness, and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name. That's the key phrase there that we're looking at now. That, that we come in His name, on the authority of, on the basis of what Jesus has commanded. You remember the, the Great Commission before Jesus ascends into heaven. He says, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and in earth. And so now, okay, I have authority over all these things. So now, here, you go into that little pocket of the world and do what you need to do to get the Gospel out. Okay, that, that authority, I'm... I'm, uh, I'm uh, deflecting or, or passing on to you. And so as we speak on behalf of Jesus and minister on behalf of Jesus, we do so on the authority of Jesus and according to the will of Jesus. This is not something that we kind of just thought up in our, our minds or we kind of had a big brainstorming session as a group of people who have common interests. This is something that we come with seriousness and, and um, boldness and clarity and with authority because Jesus has given us that authority. And then, fifthly, it demands that their message goes to all kinds of people. Look at the end of the verse. That, it, that these things would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. The, the point that Jesus is making that they don't quite understand at this point in their lives is that the message is not designed for an exclusive, exclusive ethnic group. It's not just for the Jews. Now, the disciples and the apostles even did not fully understand this. Um, they thought it meant that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached to the Jews in all the nations because obviously not all the Jews live in Israel. They, they are scattered. So we're going to preach the gospel to all the nations, but just to the Jews. And the reason we know that is because it took... Uh, it, it took uh, a word from God to Peter in Acts chapter 10 and telling him three times it's okay to go to the unclean people, these people that you see as unclean, the Gentiles. It took a, a, a powerful work of God to enlighten his mind that what Jesus was saying is that the gospel should go to all the nations, not all the Jews in all the nations. Yes, it's true, but, but also the Gentiles in all the nations. It's actually opened up the way for them as well. So Jesus clearly reveals to His followers that He is alive and He gives several proofs or verifications for how that is true. Then in verses 48-49, through 49, He commissions His followers to be His witnesses. He commissions His followers to be His witnesses. We've already seen a hint of that in verse 47, but here's kind of a formal um, commissioning of them. Verse 48, You are witnesses of these things. Are you standing in this room right now? Do you see me? Can you touch me? Do you see me eat? you hear about these proofs that I've given to you? Well, you now are my witnesses. You've seen me firsthand. You've had the opportunity to touch me. And now you have the responsibility to proclaim my word to the nations. And Jesus sends them with the presence of God. Notice verse 49. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. What is this promise of my Father? Well, we get a clue in the next line but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I think those two things are connected. The two parts of the verse, 
wait for the promise or, or the promise from my Father's coming upon you, but wait in the city until that power comes. I think what he's saying here is the power of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we read about in Acts chapter 2. Listen to what Jesus says in John 14:26. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So I think the promise of my Father that Jesus is talking about is the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, wait here until He comes to clothe you with power from on high. That comes clearly when, when at Pentecost there, seven weeks later. So Jesus verifies that He has bodily, has bodily arisen, uh, arose from the grave. He's alive. Um, and then He commissions His followers to be His witnesses. And then thirdly, verses 50 to 53, Jesus ascends into heaven. Now, it sounds like right after this meeting, right? This is Sunday, the very Sunday that He rose from the dead in the evening. There's a lot going on that day. It sounds like right after He gets done talking to them, then verse 50 happens. But we know from John's Gospel that there's actually a 40-day gap between verses 49 and 50. And what we know happens between those times is that Jesus appears multiple times to several different people in several different places, including in Galilee, which is 200 miles north in John chapter 21. So, what's happening here, this ascension into heaven? He doesn't meet His disciples, appear to them here in this upper room in Jerusalem, and then ascend into heaven, and then, oh yeah, i got to come back and do one more thing. No, I think he's, he's, um, His ascension happens at the very end. His formal ascension into heaven happens at the very end of the 40-day period after, remember, he's spending lots of time teaching some of the disciples and helping them to understand, hey, what does this mean? What are some of the implications of all this? And so apparently he appeared to them again in Jerusalem 40 days after the resurrection. That's what Luke's recording here in verses 50 to 53. And he, he leads them out to Bethany, which is a couple miles away from Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. This is often where they would stay, remember, um, when there were events going on in Jerusalem. is just too packed in the city and hard to find lodging there, so they would often stay in Bethany. Uh, of course, they had Mary and Martha and Lazarus that lived lived there. Um, and so, they may be at their house or someone else's, but this is the final place where they would see Him alive bodily. And verses 50 and 51, He blesses them and enters into heaven. And then notice their mindset that has changed now over this 40-day period. First, startled, frightened, Hard to believe in in light of all their joy and amazement. But now, in verses 52 and 53, they have a heart of worship. They have a heart of awe and fear and comfort. Look at verse 52. And they, after worshiping Him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Now, they understand some of the events of what has taken place. They know who He is. They know that the Old Testament Scriptures... Uh, demanded that he had to suffer and that he had to rise again and that he has actually done that. And so he fits every qualification, every requirement that the Old Testament had prophesied about the Messiah. He fits it perfectly. He is God. He is the Son of God in human flesh. We have seen Him. We have beheld His glory. And now as He ascends into heaven, they, they praise Him, worship Him, and then go back into the city recognizing that He is physically alive. 
So let me just uh, leave you with several several things that we can learn here tonight from our study of Luke's Gospel. Number one, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. The post-resurrection appearances of Jesus may seem inconsequential, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians that it is at the heart of the Gospel. We, we read 1 Corinthians 15, 12-20, but if you think about it, in the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, For I delivered unto you what is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins and that He rose from the, the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures and that He appeared to the Peter and the Twelve and to more than 500 people at one time and then to James and the Apostles and last of all to me, Paul. Jesus is alive. He has made it clear to all of these various people, over 500 people have seen Him alive since He has died. Jesus is alive. Number two, testifying about Jesus begins with knowing that He is alive. Or we can say it this way, testifying about Jesus begins with the confidence that He is alive. Do you know the the disciples would face severe persecution in the days ahead, wouldn't they? And for the rest of their lives. And how is it that they could stay faithful to Christ for so many years? How could they continue to remain faithful to Jesus? It's because they were confident that He was alive and that He was worthy to be served. Look at verse 52 again. And they, after worshiping Him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They were confident that Jesus was alive. If we are unsure of whether Jesus is alive or unsure of whether Jesus is the Messiah, then I can assure you that we are not going to make very good witnesses of Him. Because we are natural evangelists for the things that we believe in and love most. Right? Nobody forces me to talk about pizza or ice cream because I believe in those food items and I love them. Nobody has to force me to say nice thing about nice things about my wife and kids. I naturally speak highly of them because I know them and I love them more than anyone else on the planet. But if you want me to go around to my friends and tell them about the Ohio State Buckeyes or the Kardashians or Al Sharpton or bananas or split pea soup, I'm not going to be a very credible witness, am I? Because I don't believe in those people or in those food items. And the point is is that we're not going to be very good witnesses for someone we don't fully believe in or love. That's why I often encourage us and myself that we should never tire of mining the Scriptures for the truth and motivation for knowing Jesus because the more you know Him, the more you will trust Him. And the more you trust and love Him, the more you will speak about Him. We are natural evangelists for the things that we believe in and love most. So testifying about Jesus begins with knowing and being confident that He is alive. Number three, the Bible that you hold in your hands has great power. Now, I'm not talking about some kind of mystical or magical power, of course. I'm saying that the written Word is a surer proof that Jesus is the risen Lord than an actual appearance of His resurrected body. Have you ever thought that? If I could just have Jesus here with me while I'm witnessing, it would help me. I could get people to come to Christ. But can I kind of burst your bubble a little bit? That's not going to happen. And it actually wouldn't change their view of Jesus. You know why I know that? 
Because when Jesus appeared to the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, do you remember what the first thing he did was? Did he reveal himself bodily to them? Say, hey, hey did you check the nail prints? You know, do, do, you, do you remember who I am? Did, can you sense it in my voice? Can you hear the timber in my voice? It's, it's me. Now, what does he do? He talks to them about the Old Testament and says, here, let me show you how the Messiah had to suffer. And then he reveals himself bodily to them. And that's also consistent with what we know about in Luke chapter 16. Do you remember what Abraham in paradise said to the rich man who says, please send someone to my brothers and tell them. Abraham says, no, I'm not going to do that. And that actually wouldn't be helpful because they wouldn't believe. Because they had Moses and the prophets and they didn't believe. If they're, not going to, if they're not going to believe that, they're not going to believe if someone rose from the dead. You know, there were all sorts of people that, that knew that Jesus rose from the dead, including the Pharisees, and that didn't make them any more capable of believing or any more sure that Jesus was the Messiah. And so what I'm saying to you is that your Bible has great power. It is a surer proof than the actual resurrected body of Jesus. This is exactly what God wants us to have in this age to testify about Him. It speaks about Him in, in uh, the clearest way in this age. Number four, the story of the Gospel is to be continued. The story of the Gospel is to, to be continued. Following uh, verse 53 here, Jesus sits at the right hand of God, which is where He is now. But we know that He also is coming to rule on this earth. He lived His life and died in order for salvation to come to all who believe in Him. And any disciple of Jesus will find that following Him is not not easy. Living for Jesus is met with great persecution trouble, but the blessings of following Christ far outweigh the difficulties in this life. And that gift of eternal life and salvation from the wrath of God is a gift for both Jew and Gentile. In fact, even the social outcasts can find forgiveness in Jesus and will enjoy the same eternal life as any of God's children. But as Jesus is in heaven now, the gospel is not done. It's not that okay, we're, we're closing the book on the Gospel. It's, it's over. It's really to be continued because Jesus is coming back. He's going to establish His kingdom and those who trust in Him alone will be a part of His kingdom. That kingdom, when it was offered to Israel, was rejected. And so now the establishment, establishment of that kingdom has been delayed. And this coming of the kingdom will coincide with the return of our Savior to this earth. And so... This gospel continues in us in that we need to be ready for His coming. We need to be seeking out the lost. We need to be these witnesses that Jesus called these first disciples to be. And we need to offer them the gift that was offered to us, which is salvation apart from works. Although your name is not written out first and last in this book, in this gospel, this gospel has real implications for your life. That you must repent and believe and that when you have, you must be a witness for your Savior. For your Savior, Jesus is alive and we are His witnesses. Let's pray.
Father, we are grateful for the confidence that we can have in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. One of the great uh, truths that we know is that not only did Jesus rise from the dead bodily, but that He now lives bodily and will return bodily to the Mount of Olives, the very place that He left. And we look forward to that day. We know it's going to be a time of great judgment on all the wicked on the earth. And and we cringe to think about their fate because we easily could be in their shoes if it were not for Your mercy. But we also look forward to that day with anticipation because we know it will be a time in which You are vindicated and our faith is vindicated. Wisdom is justified by all of her children. And so we know that that this wisdom that we count on, that Jesus is the Messiah and that He must be worshipped, is a wisdom that is, is unseen in the world today. And so one day it will be clear that Jesus is our judge and that He is uh, worthy of all of our praise. It will be clear to all the righteous and the wicked. And there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of You, our Father. And so, Lord, until that time, help us not to be afraid to speak up on behalf of Jesus. Help us not to be ashamed to speak His name and to point other people to the truth. Lord, may we not just live lives of, of, um, of blamelessness or, or, of, um, or of righteousness, may we also tell of Your Gospel because how can they call on Him in whom they have not heard? Lord, they need to hear the Gospel from us. So please help us to be uh, bold witnesses for Your sake as we come into contact with unbelievers within our circles of influence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.